forth. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, in our pew Bibles, this is near the top of page 1015. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And uh, now we are going to uh, read together our confession, our Belgic Confession of Faith. Article 36, Um, you may want to eventually, as I uh, turn to our lesson this morning, open up uh, in your hymnal to the article on page 870 in the back, Uh, but we do have it printed here in our bulletin. Uh, The reason for opening to your hymnal is that this is the one article in our confession that has been uh, changed, has been revised to uh, reflect uh, a disagreement with what our Reformed fathers taught in the 16th century, and to uh, put this article in more of our modern and, uh, we believe, more biblical context. So, Belgic Article 36, uh, let's read it together. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, The civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them. They should do it in order that the word of God may have free course. The kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. 
Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government and pay taxes and hold its representatives in honor and respect and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word, praying for them that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency. And on this matter, we denounce the Anabaptists, other anarchists, and in general, all those who want to reject the authorities and civil officers and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. Well, uh, that is uh, quite a mouthful. And just to be uh, perfectly uh, clear, we do have still an asterisk there uh, in what we just read. And that asterisk is unexplained. Uh, but in our Psalter hymnals on page um, 870, uh, we read that that asterisk um, refers to um, uh, the previous three paragraphs. Now, the paragraph order got a little uh, muddled up here in conversion to our bulletin. But if you look above to the sixth line where we read, and being called in this manner, and being called in this manner, from that point to the asterisk is a modern uh, replacement for uh, the text we find in our hymnal, um, uh, the old text which has been uh, replaced. So, uh, we'll get to that in due course time. Um, Let me begin this way. Why is this article in our confession? Um, As our reading from 1 Peter uh, indicates, the Bible is not silent about our obedience uh, to rulers. Uh, We can look here to 1 Peter, honor the emperor, be subject to them. We see a very similar message from Paul in Romans uh, 13. Uh, Now, the important thing about Peter and Paul is that they are saying something that is radically new for Old Testament saints, for Jews. Uh, We know that there were zealots who were looking for a Messiah uh, to forcibly overthrow uh, the Roman oppression of the Holy Land. They were looking for the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, uh, did not... uh, Um, say or agree with these zealots. He very much departed uh, from their teaching. And so what is going on in the new covenant is that the sword is not only acknowledged to belong to the civil magistrate, uh, not only are Peter and Paul acknowledging that they hold the sword for punishing evildoers in the civil sphere, but they are actually taking that sword away from the Davidic Old Testament kingdom of Israel. They are saying, no longer will there be a civil theocratic land, a type and shadow of the kingdom of God. That type and shadow has been fulfilled in Christ. And that's why I wanted to start reading earlier in 1 Peter. Notice what Peter says. He talks about this people being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. That's the church. It's a holy nation, and yet that holy nation does not exercise civil dominion. In this in-between time, before the coming of Christ, before that day of visitation, which Peter uh, concludes by, in this in-between time, we express ourselves not visibly, not the glory of God visibly in glory and power, but we humble ourselves in the world in this age of gospel grace and forgiveness. Um, 
Jesus is quite clear on this. Mark 12, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. I would say this is the pattern of the book of Acts. Again and again and again, the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians in the synagogues are accusing uh, the Christian church of wanting to overturn the order of the world. And Paul is saying, no, we are breaking no laws. We just want to submit. Um, he is happy and he's, he's seeking the freedom of conscience, even as a Roman citizen, to preach and teach uh, messages that are, are not um, sort of uh, political in their nature. Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, courtesy toward all people. First, or rather, Thessalonians 4.10. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. Interesting phrase, mind your own affairs. We're given God's law, brothers and sisters, as a church, to govern ourselves. We aren't given God's law to tell other people outside the church how to live their lives. Yes, we call them to repentance with God's law. But we aren't given God's law to establish a civil order. 1 Peter 2, which we read. So this article is in our confession because it's biblical. And it's an important part of our gospel uh, message that we proclaim. But it's also important uh, to remember the context of the Protestant Reformation, the 16th uh, century when this was written. Um, At the time of Paul's writing to Romans, it was unthinkable. Uh, that Christians would be anything but subject to the state. Uh, that's why it's, it's quite obvious for all people everywhere to see, well, Paul didn't really have an option, right? He didn't say, uh, organize a political party. He didn't say, maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a, a Christian Caesar, and then everything will be good. That was infathomable to him. From the time of Constantine, however, in the 4th century, the church's relation to the governing authorities in the Roman Empire became much more complicated. In a desire to uh, protect the church from persecution, Constantine swings quite the other way. The only thing the world has ever known, brothers and sisters, is a merging of state and religion. That's the only thing the world has ever known. We talk about the separation of church and state today, but we know that our state is not without faith. (laughs) It's not without a foundation and claims of its ultimate authority and ultimate religious truths. That's how states always operate. And the New Covenant says, no, no. So that temptation of Constantine developed over the following thousand years. Uh, In the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, uh, from Constantine on, we have Caesaropapism, this merging of the state and uh, the leader of the church, the father of the church, the Pope. And this is also expressed in the Western Church, where popes would regularly crown rulers and and were constantly negotiating their authority vis-a-vis the civil state. And if you go to Rome, uh, you can probably get a a Vatican City passport. It is its own nation state. The Roman Catholic Church claims to govern territory uh, uh, within the nation of Italy. Crusades, again, present great confusion of spiritual and secular power, military power. The Reformation complicates this relationship. And... um, The Reformed Fathers were all born into a system in which it was simply assumed that it was the state's job to protect the church. And they did not, by and large, during the 16th century, uh, depart heavily from it. Lutheranism is still closely allied with princely power. The only reason the Lutheran Reformation works 
is because Luther has an ally in Frederick the Wise. The only reason. And in fact, he used a lot of different reasons, you know, multiple motivations for Frederick the Wise was waging a a political battle battle, uh, with the Holy Roman Empire and with the Pope. The English Reformation is, again, it's not an exception. We often say, well, the Anglican Church is this sort of civil, political, uh, um, um, you know, accommodation. It's not really a, a pure spiritual reform. Nowhere on the continent is it a pure spiritual reform. Henry VIII declares independence from the Pope uh, for the sake of getting a divorce. And Parliament passes the Act of Supremacy, making the English monarch the effective supreme lord and governor of the church. But this had always been the case. It was always assumed. uh, With one great exception. In one uh, area of the Reformation, this pendulum swung radically away from this traditional understanding. And they had a good case from the pages of the New Testament. Right? They had a good case from those words of Christ and Paul, which we have referenced. The Anabaptist, or the Radical Reformation, had many anarchist elements. The state has no authority, they said, in this extreme uh, swing. John of Leiden said we had now entered the age of the Spirit, and there was no civil government. We'd be ruled by God's Spirit. Good times. Um, Now, we must remember that since our confession was written to defend the Reformed against the charge that they were indistinguishable from Anabaptists, that they were Anabaptists, that there is a clear denunciation of this Anabaptist view. And we can heartily agree with that. And yet the Reformed tradition had yet uh, to really clearly articulate how it disagreed, and it did disagree, with the medieval consensus of uh, the state and the church having uh, wedded power. Let me give you one example that I recently learned of in a book in the last few years. Uh, Zwingli, in the early Swiss Reformation, in the town of Zurich, uh, reading the New New Testament, uh, saw elders... Elders rule and govern the church, right? We have elders in our church. One of them sitting here right now. Zwingli, and I think this was consistent with previous interpretation, said, we have our elders today in the person of the prince. We have governors. And so we don't need elders in the church. They govern the church. They say who's a member, who's not a member, who can be baptized, who cannot be baptized. And so Zwingli, again, very reformed in much of what he believes, doesn't establish the office of elder as a spiritual office in the church. 20, 30 years later in Geneva, Calvin does. Now this is something of a baby step, but Calvin insists upon the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God in the church. Who is baptized? It's not a matter of citizenship, it's a matter of confession. (laughs) Who comes to the Lord's table? Who is excommunicated? It's not a matter of breaking a civil law. It's a matter of breaking God's law. And so Calvin establishes this office of elder. That's what we have in our Belgic Confession of Faith. And this is a radical revolution from what was taking place 20 or 30 years later. Now, in practice, a lot of things didn't change. A heretic was burned at the stake in Geneva, Michael Servetus, because he denied the Trinity. People often say, Calvin, such a horrible man, he burned a heretic at the state. Michael Servetus went to Geneva because he thought it was the one place where he stood a chance of surviving. He fled Spain and other Roman Catholic territories where people were burned at the stake by the tens of thousands in this century. The fact that there is one in Geneva shows how this is changing. 
And it raised a lot of challenges. So that's why we have this in our confession. So really quickly, I want to go what we confess. Um, the outline sort of goes like this. The purpose of the magistrate, the calling of the magistrate, both in the 16th century and in our modern uh, translation here, and the calling of the believer and the error that we reject. First, the purpose of the magistrate. Uh, just reading from our text here, we believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained, that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. Governing authorities are ordained by God. Paul says this. Paul says the rulers of the earth are established by God. The state is a check on our human evil. This is the first use of God's law as we talk about multiple uses of God's moral law. It keeps us from being as wicked as otherwise. And it operates on a very simple principle. Uh, the law in its first use strikes fear into our hearts. Don't break the law, you'll pay the penalty. There are these speed bumps on Russell Road, which is near my house in Alexandria. And they're the kind of speed bumps that for emergency vehicles have uh, the two little divots in them. So if you cross over the double yellow line and drive down the center of the road, your car doesn't do this. And you save your shock absorbers. You can maybe last a little bit longer. And so for years, I just drove across the double yellow line. And then I got a ticket. I didn't realize that these divots, I, I thought they were just there for smart people. I didn't realize they were only there for emergency vehicles. Now, every time I drive down this road, I think of, I really want to drive over the divots, but I'm afraid of getting another ticket and having to spend another 20 hours of my life in online traffic school. It works. That's the first use of the law. And I'm no better a person. I'm a worse person. I complain about it all the time. Ask my daughter. I'm teaching her to drive. She's, she's like, I'm not going to drive over the divots. This is a good thing. This is law, not gospel. Uh, we should note again uh, that, that this isn't, isn't a, a saving thing. This is common grace. No one is saved by this. No souls are transformed by the government. No law ever caused anyone to do uh, a good work as it is defined by our catechism. Our catechism and the Westminster Standard say a, a good work is defined as a work that outwardly conforms with the law of God and inwardly is done in faith in Christ. No civil law has ever caused anyone to do a good work. Blue laws might keep you from buying booze and getting drunk and beating your wife on Sunday. That's what they're there for. But those aren't good works if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. God has given the sword to the state for this preservative purpose. Just to keep enough order so that the church, the kingdom of God, may progress and advance in the world. They have this power to execute justice. Now, one mistake we make here is, well, the state is, is, is established by God when it does its job well. That would be a prescriptive reading of Romans 13, to punish the evildoer. But what about when the state punishes good people? And that happens in, in uh, communism, in Marxism, in a lot of instances. Paul doesn't say, if the state does this, it has the sword from God's hand. He, he says descriptively, all rulers are put in position by God. And so this makes us swallow this really bitter pill that Peter and Paul swallowed. Paul paid taxes to the Roman Empire that would, that would support the armies that nailed Christ to the cross. 
Paul helped pay for the nails in the cross. And he tells us all to do the same. Peter says, submit to the emperor, even though he's ministering to people who were probably exiled from Rome and lost all their property. This is not a validation of the degree of purity of our civil magistrate. I'm not arguing for for moral ambiguity that all states are the same. There are good ones and bad ones. But all of them are good enough for God's purpose. It's a very small purpose, a very low bar, just to keep things from going entirely off the rails. And anarchy is bad. It's off the rails. So Paul is describing the state. He's describing the authority it has. But our our confession goes on and talks about uh, the calling uh, of the magistrate. Um, This is where things get a little bit muddy. Because in the 16th century, I'll just read briefly what we said. Um, This is in italics on page 870 of our Trinity Psalter hymnal. And the government's task is not limited to caring or, or watching over the public domain, but extends also to upholding the sacred ministry with a view to removing and destroying all idolatry and false worship of the Antichrist, to promoting the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and to furthering the preaching of the gospel everywhere, to the end that God may be honored and served by everyone as he requires in his word. Do you see the distinction made there by our confession? Uh, The civil magistrate doesn't only have concern for the public things common to all, He has concerns for the church and the sacred ministry as well. This is why the civil magistrate can burn heretics at the stake. Even though the author of our confession would be burned at the stake, he acknowledged that the prince had the authority to burn him at the stake. And so he couldn't wrap his mind around a world in which that wasn't the case. And that's what we confessed but let's, let's not be confused. The authority given here to the state over the sacred ministry is uh, quite uh, problem, problematic. Um, our confessions are not scripture. They're summaries of scripture, and they may err. And I believe that we erred here, I believe along with our church and all Reformed Christians who confess the Belgic Confession since the early part of this 20th century, uh, that our confession erred here. Um, This comes from the context of the medieval church. It was very difficult to overcome 1,200 years since Constantine and adopt a new way of thinking of the relation between church and state. Our uh, confession, the catechism at least, talks about the Pope as being the Antichrist. So when it says here that he should uh, um, destroy all idolatry and false worship of the Antichrist, Reformed believers were calling on... uh, the Holy Roman Empire, to change sides. (laughs) Defend Reformed believers, defend Protestants, and get that Pope off his throne. We no longer want um, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump determining who is the Antichrist and who is the Christian. What God law requires of us. Which heretics should be destroyed. Uh, That is not a power or authority that God gave to the state in the pages of the New Testament. He establishes a spiritual authority. Um, I have a lot of material on this, but not a lot of time. Let me just suffice by saying that Abraham Kuyper, a great leader of the Reformed Church and once the Prime Minister of the Netherlands in the 19th, early 20th century, uh, Kuyper argued uh, strongly for this change of the confession, given uh, the rise of of modern uh, civil society. 
and modern views of the relation of the the state and the church. And just a few quotes here from Kuyper. Uh, We oppose this confession, this old confession, out of complete conviction. We would rather be considered to not be reformed and insist that men ought to not kill heretics than that we be left with the reformed name as the prize for assisting in the shedding of the blood of heretics. He says, I don't care. If you want to say I'm not reformed anymore, that's fine. But we shouldn't execute heretics. It is our conviction that the examples which are found in the Old Testament are of no force for us. We must wrap our heads around the fact that the Old Testament is a type and shadow. When when Peter says, you are a holy nation, that's the reality. That's the truth. That has always been the truth. The church is the holy nation of God. The Old Testament taught us a lesson about the character of the church. It was a shadow. It was not the real thing. We have the substance in Christ. Our king is ruling and reigning now, here on earth. Kuiper continues, The Lord and the apostles never called upon the help of the magistrate to kill with the sword. The rooting out of heretics is not the obligation of the sword. This was taken over from Romish practice, he says. The acceptance of carrying out this principle almost always, he makes a practical argument, almost always has returned upon the head of non-heretics and not the truth, but heresy has been honored by the magistrate. Yes, Constantine did a great job helping to call the Council of Nicaea in 325, but for about the next 70 years, a lot of bad emperors established Arianism. (laughs) There is no promise in scripture that the state will get spiritual matters right. Usually, almost always, it'll get them wrong. We do not at all hide the fact, closing with Kuiper, that we disagree with Calvin, our confessions, and our Reformed theologians. Bold and clear and useful teaching. This, this conversation gets muddy to lock because they'll say, well, look what Calvin says. Look what uh, Guido de Bray says. And they're like, yeah, we don't believe that. They're just people. So in the 20th century, we adopted uh, this replacement material and being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God. The civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them, there's that Kuiper for you, with the means belonging to them, they should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Now, our 20th century fathers were... uh, charged with making a change to our confession. And a lot of people thought the old version was right, and some people wanted a change. And so this is necessarily a compromise. (laughs) I have a whole section here, and not the time to walk through it, of how uh, we might amend this further. But we need to remember that this was written to continue to preserve some sort of purpose for the state vis-a-vis the sacred ministry. And what is the purpose here? The purpose here, I would argue, is basically freedom of religion. They should see to it that the church is not persecuted by the world. They should protect the church. Not picking sides in church matters. Uh, But they should refrain from a tendency towards absolute authority. They don't have authority over spiritual matters, is what our confession is saying. But in the middle of the 20th century, when this was adopted, um, and I believe what is going on here, um, where it talks about every anti-Christian power, 
there is the specter and the fear of the godless state, which was somewhat of a novelty. Uh, Communism. And we didn't want to say that the church didn't have an opinion about communism. (laughs) And we could argue in many cases that we most certainly do. Right? But I don't believe uh, that these uh, three paragraphs here in our confession, um, I believe they, they, they are liable to many interpretations and they aren't the clearest part of our confession. Yet I can uh, subscribe to them. I don't disagree with them. I think there are a lot of different readings. I basically read them in terms of the state should allow the gospel to be preached. The state should do what Paul appealed to the Roman emperor to do. Allow us to preach Christ and live decent and quiet lives. I believe that's our view of what the state should do. And uh, to close, because we must, uh, fourth and finally, everyone must be subject uh, to the government, moving beyond the revised portion of our confession. This is clearly the New Testament teaching. Uh, Everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject, must pay your taxes. This comes straight from the New Testament. This is clear, implicit distancing from the radical Anabaptist error, which is entirely uh, condemned. We are not anarchists. We believe government is good. We believe God has established government. But the key is, for what purpose? A very limited and constrained purpose. It is preservative, not redemptive. It keeps the order. Um, I think you can put the New Testament command to the church in uh, a simple term. It is not to govern, but to be governed. That's the command of Romans 13. Be subject. We are called to be passive. Yes, passive, in the face of uh, an abundantly abusive state. It's very difficult. Um, Brothers and sisters, we are given this great uh, privilege and joy to know that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that shall never fail, that Christ is ruling and reigning even now in the worst of political abuses of our age, and that he will return on the day of visitation uh, to set things uh, aright. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for a true king, Jesus Christ. He is our only ruler, uh, both in civil affairs and in spiritual affairs. Uh, But you have, uh, through Christ, established a people to rule under him at his discretion. And we pray that you would give us the patience, uh, the the long-suffering nature, uh, the confidence in Christ's rule and reign. uh, To suffer the slings and arrows of this world, even persecution at the hands of the state. Uh, to the honor and glory of your holy name and kingdom. Amen.